Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter number 2. I just want to mention a, a brief prayer request before we get into the message this morning. Um, be praying for the Lucius family. Uh, Jennifer Lucius is um, getting very close to her due date and um, just need our prayers right now. That the Lord would keep her and the baby healthy and that everything would uh, would go well over these next couple weeks. Mark chapter number 2 this morning. I want to begin by reading uh, in verse number 13, down through verse number 17. Mark chapter 2, verse number 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, And all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many... And they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing upon your word this morning and upon our hearts and on our minds that we would learn the truth that we need to know and that we would live our lives according to it and following the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved sinners enough to sit down with them and teach them so that they might be saved and have a personal relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the criticisms that was leveled at Jesus by his opponents was that he was a friend of publicans and sinners. We read in our text here that a group of Pharisees on this particular occasion questioned Jesus' disciples about this. Notice the question they asked, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? You know, they, they meant that as an insult, as a bad thing. To say, Jesus must not be a great teacher and a holy man, if he is going to associate with those kinds of people by sitting down and sharing a meal with them in their presence. But what they meant as an insult was actually a compliment. Yes, Jesus loves sinners. And aren't you glad of that this morning? Aren't you glad that Jesus loves sinners? Because you know what that means? It means he loves you and he loves me. If Jesus only ever associated with those people who already had their act together, 
He never would have come to earth to do what He did. But see, Jesus loved sinners so much that He left heaven. He came to earth. And He lived among sinners. And He taught sinners. And He healed sinners. And He fed sinners. And then He died for sinners. He was buried for sinners. And He rose again for sinners. And now He offers all, eternal life to all who would believe. Now the world would have us believe that love is letting people do whatever they want. The world's version of loving someone is to affirm them in whatever decisions they make, in whatever direction they want to go, simply just telling them that they're the greatest thing ever and they've, they only ever make right decisions, they are only ever good. That's the world's idea of love. But if what someone is doing is destructive, it is, if it is harmful, and if ultimately it is not in their best interest, then the loving thing to do is to tell them so. To allow someone to continue to hurt themselves and not intervene, not try to stop them, is not love. It is only selfishness on our part because you don't want to take the time or expend the energy or you're afraid of, 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 of how it might reflect on you and you're concerned more about your image and your reputation than you are their well-being. Genuine love is loving someone enough to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. But Jesus understood, because He is the Creator, He knows us inside and out, literally. How we think, how we work, how we operate, He understood a very important principle that truth is best communicated through relationship. And Jesus loved sinners enough to spend time with them. Not so that He could affirm them in their sin, but so that He could tell them the truth about their sin and their need to be saved. And we have a very good instance of this recorded for us in Mark chapter 2. And here in this passage, Jesus addresses the criticism leveled against him when they said, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? They didn't even ask him that question directly. They were asking his disciples, going behind Jesus' back as it were. But he answers them in verse 17 by asking a very simple question, something that we can all identify with. He says in verse 17, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. A very simple statement that he makes there that we all identify with. How many of you, the last, you went to the emergency room and requested stitches when there was absolutely no cut and nothing wrong with you? Anybody ever done that? You ever walk in an emergency room and be like, hey, I'm bored, can I have stitches? Now, now you may have had a, a brother that would have obliged you, you know. Sure, I'll give you a reason to have stitches. But no, you don't just go... <laughs> You don't just go to the emergency room to do that. Now, if you're, if you're wise, you'll go to the doctor occasionally for a well visit, you know, just to make sure everything's like it's supposed to be. But usually you don't go to the doctor and hey, doc, say, hey, doc, can you give me some medication? And the doctor say, well, okay, what, what for? What's wrong? What kind of symptoms do you have? 
Oh, no, I don't have any symptoms. There's nothing wrong with me. I just like taking medicine. We would all agree that's not a normal person, right? We're on the same page. Something's wrong if that's your attitude. No, they that are sick are the ones that need the doctor. Someone who's whole, who's well, are not the ones who need the treatment. And Jesus makes that very simple statement, and then he connects immediately what what he means by that illustration with the following statement. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, you got to understand what Jesus meant here. He's not in any way indicating that there are certain people on the earth who are already righteous and therefore don't need to repent of their sins and don't need Jesus. He's not saying that. Because the Bible's very clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. But what he is, is saying he is that those who are self-righteous, those who already think they've got it all together and they've got it all figured out and they've gotten their sin problem taken care of on their own, those people who think they are righteous are not candidates for the salvation that Jesus offers That seems like a harsh statement, doesn't it? You mean that some people can't be saved? Not yet. Because in order for a person to be saved, notice what Jesus said. He said, I came to call sinners to repentance. As long as a person is thinking, I'm fine, I don't need Jesus, then they're not going to be saved. It's not until they come to the point where they realize, I'm a sinner. I have a spiritual sickness. I have a spiritual disease and the diagnosis is fatal. And I can't save myself. I can't cure myself. I need a Savior. Until they come to that point, they cannot be saved. And what Jesus is saying here is that He did not come to affirm people in their self-righteousness. He came to save those who realize they have no righteousness of their own. And it was in this context of sitting down and sharing a meal with sinners that Jesus made this statement. He was saying, the reason that I am willing to sit down across the table and share a meal with someone who may be living a deplorable lifestyle, who may be wicked, who may be... um, misguided, who may be unbelieving, the reason I'm willing to associate with them is because I want to call them to repentance. Some people have taken the example of Jesus here and and really distorted it and used it as permission for Christians to live like the world in in whatever way they want it. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that we should live like the world in order to reach the world. But what he is saying is that if we want to reach the world, then we're going to have to reach out to the world. I want you to notice just three particular truths about this passage that kind of help us understand the dynamics here. First of all, Let's notice the companions in this passage here. There's a premise that I want us to think about as we go through these, uh, this passage today, and it's this. If we're going to be effective in reaching the lost, 
then we have to connect with them in some fashion in order to do that. Now, in this particular passage here, we find the calling of one of Jesus' first disciples, later would be known as an apostle. Here he is called Levi, but we also know him by the title of Matthew. It's the same guy, and he actually wrote one of the Gospels. Can anybody guess which one it was? The book of Matthew. Very good. He actually wrote the book of Matthew. It's this guy here. He's called Levi. And it's kind of like Simon Peter, all right? couple names, he's called both throughout the scriptures. We find the same thing about Matthew here. And Jesus is in this, uh, in this coastal town named Capernaum. And he is, um, in the earlier in this chapter, we read how he uh, heals the man who was, um, who was sick of the palsy and his four friends came and lowered him down into the house where Jesus was and healed him. We read that whole story. Verse number 12, the man gets up and he walks out and everybody's amazed and they glorify God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. And so he leaves from there and he goes out and he's down by the, by the shore. He's by the seaside. And all of the multitude had resorted to him. There's crowds of people that are coming around him. And as Jesus is walking along, maybe he's just in between teaching sessions here and he's just taking a, a little bit of a break or maybe he is traveling to another location to set up and teach. But he goes by uh, this particular uh, place where this man Levi or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, is sitting at the receipt of custom. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a publican. That's important as we look at this story a little bit later on. So he was, um, based upon his lineage here, uh, we can surmise that he was definitely a Jew, but he was a Jew who worked for the Roman government collecting taxes. His job there at the seaport was probably to collect some kind of trade tax. You know, as ships would come in and they would offload their goods, they'd have to pay a certain amount uh, to the Romans uh, and, you know, for transpiring business. Not unlike today when we buy something, when, uh, you know, we, ex- we have to pay sales tax on it, different things like that. So that was his job. He's sitting there collecting taxes. The publicans had some of the worst reputations of anybody in Jesus' day. Because they were notorious for being cheats. They made their living by charging more taxes than they had to. And they got away with it because they had the authority and the protection of the the Roman government behind them. And so the publicans were seen as cheats. They were seen as traitors by the Jewish people as well. So it's kind of like if Benedict Arnold worked for the IRS, okay? (laughs) That's what he did. And Jesus is going along and he says to him, you... Levi, I want you to follow me. And notice what verse 14 says. He arose and followed him. He arose and followed him. Aren't you glad that Jesus picks unlikely candidates to serve him? That's just the wisdom of God right there. Because honestly, if you and I were to pick all of God's servants it would just be kind of like a, um, a glorified class president election in high school, right? Just kind of a big popularity contest. Who has a, who, who's the most winsome personality? Who has the whitest teeth? You know, the homecoming king and queen kind of deal. That's, that's what we would do if it were left to us, but God knows better. And here he picks a man that, to be 
quite honest, was an unlikely candidate for Jesus' representative. He's a publican. But he calls him, and notice what Matthew does. Immediately, he arises and follows Jesus. Yes, he may have been a publican. Yes, he may have cheated people in the past. Yes, he may have lied. Yes, he may have been a traitor. But something changed that day in Matthew's life. He met Jesus, and he made the decision to follow him. So he follows Jesus, and it came to pass, verse 15, that that Jesus, as he sat at meat in his house. Now, who is the his here? A little grammatical quiz. Who's, who's his house? Whose house is this referring to? Levi's, Matthew's. Not Jesus' house. Jesus didn't have a house. This was Levi's house. So the narrative here is just kind of flowing pretty quick. So we got to kind of fill in the gaps. So at some point, uh, right after he starts following Jesus, he says to Jesus something like, Jesus, would you come to my house and have a meal with me? Jesus says yes, and so they go down, and now they're sitting at Matthew's house. And notice what verse 15 says. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. Now this setting is very important as we, as we try to understand the context of Jesus and what he did in his, his example that he sets for us here. Whose house was it? It was Matthew's house. What do we know about Matthew? Levi. What do we know about him? Just a few hours before this, he was most likely an unsaved publican. But now we know for sure he is a follower of Jesus. That change has just happened very recently. So let's think about it. What kind of people did Levi most likely associate with prior to leaving his old life and following Jesus? What kind of people? Publicans and sinners. And who are the people that gathered then at Levi's house with Jesus? They were publicans and sinners. It's very likely that these were people that Matthew had been friends with, Levi had been friends with for a long time. I don't think it's out of the question to think that maybe he invited them to come to his house specifically so that they could be introduced to Jesus. But there is an important point here to understand that that what we see here, this scene, was not Jesus gathering a bunch of sinners together just to carouse and hang out and have fun. First of all, he didn't organize this dinner. Second of all, he didn't invite the guests. Third of all, he was there not to just have fun with them, not to just carouse with them, not to affirm them in what they're doing, but to call them to repentance. Notice what it says here in this verse. This is very important. It says that Jesus was there with his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Okay, who's the they? Y'all feel like y'all in school this morning, right? Teacher? No. All right, just, just follow me here. This is important. Who's the they? Publicans and sinners and disciples could also be lumped in this whole big group here. All right, who's the him? Jesus, all right? Well, I'm getting to something here. Who's following who? They are following Jesus. That's significant. Why is that significant? Because it tells us who's influencing who right here. 
It tells us that Jesus was not following the worldly crowd. This crowd was following Jesus. That's an important distinction. Jesus had followers that were coming to Him to hear His teaching, to listen to what He had to say. He was the one influencing them, not the other way around. That's why we, this is one area that we have to be very careful in. And we have to acknowledge this danger if we're going to um, properly reach out to the lost. There is always a danger that the world could influence us. It's always a danger. We are not, none of us are, the sinless Son of God. Jesus Christ could not be influenced by this worldly crowd. You and I could. And in the context of reaching out to the lost, we have to be careful that we maintain a a healthy relationship, which means that they are not influencing us. We are the ones influencing them with the message of the gospel. So these are the companions here. So now let's see again, number two, the contradiction. The Pharisees see what's going on here. Which, by the way, how did they know? How did they know? Did they hear about it or were they there to see it? I think there were probably some Pharisees that were at this meal. Because it says that they're here at this setting and they speak to the disciples. It sounds to me like they're all kind of one big crowd. But now they see Jesus. Maybe he's just a couple seats down and he's talking to one of these, these, uh, these publicans and sinners. And they're shocked. They're horrified. I can't believe he's eating with publicans and sinners. Well, what are you doing, Mr. Pharisee? You think you're somehow superior because you're two seats farther away? But here's their question. They, they turned to Jesus' disciples. They didn't ask Him directly. They went to one of His disciples, and they, there are several of them perhaps, and said, How is it? What does He think He's doing? What, what is this all about? Behind it, there's an assumption here. There's a, there's a, um, there's a prejudice here. Don't you know that what He's doing is bad? How is it that he's eating with publicans and sinners? There's no record of what the disciples said in response here. Maybe they were stumped. They had grown up in the same religious culture. Maybe had been taught by some of these same Pharisees at some point. We don't know. They had it drilled into them that if you're a righteous person, you are never, ever seen in any context... Friendly, being friendly to an unrighteous person. And so they ask this question, how is it? But Jesus hears. And Jesus speaks up and Jesus answers their question. But let's, let's think about the, 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 the basis of this contradiction here. What was their mistake? Was their mistake in thinking that there should be a certain level of separation between unholy and holy. Was that a mistake to think that? No, that wasn't a mistake. 
Going all the way back to the book of Leviticus, God laid down a principle in the Old Testament law that, yes, we're supposed to be putting a difference between the holy and the unholy. So it wasn't a mistake to think that. Was it a mistake to think that those people were publicans and sinners? Was that wrong? No, that was actually true. Yeah, they were they people who'd done bad things. Was it a mistake to be concerned that people who live an evil lifestyle could negatively influence others? No, that's not a mistake either because that very much can happen. It's the old illustration of the bad apple. What happens when you put the bad apple in the, the barrel of good apples? Does the bad apple turn good? No. So that was legit. So what was the problem here? I'll boil it down like this. The problem was they thought separation meant superiority. They thought separation meant superiority. By the way, this is a very common mistake to this day. Their doctrine of separation was a doctrine of legalism. And arrogance and hypocrisy always accompany legalism. Now, let me define my terms. What is legalism? That's a term that is tossed around way too, too much by people who want to use it to justify whatever thing they want to do. Well, you're just being a legalist. That's just legalism. Now, legalism is when you add works to the gospel in any form. When you're saying you have to do this in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, that your standing with God is dependent upon your actions. That's legalism in its most basic form. Legalism is not having standards. We ought to have standards. We ought to say there are certain things that I will do and won't do based upon what God has commanded me in our word. That's not legalism. That's that's obedience. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, justly, and righteously in this present world. Titus chapter 2. Legalism is not having standards. Legalism is when you think your standards earn you favor with God. That's legalism. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 with me. See, the Pharisees had this this arrogant attitude of superiority. Behind this question is the thinking, we are better than the publicans and sinners. Romans chapter 2. Look at verse number 21. says, Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Paul was writing primarily to Jews in that particular passage and saying, hey, I know you think that because you're a Jew, you're better than everybody else. But don't you realize that you're excusing a whole lot of sin and a whole lot of hypocrisy in your arrogant attitude? And that's what he's saying here. You teach that other people don't steal, but are you stealing? Are you a thief? You teach that you should not abhor idols, but aren't you committing sacrilege? 
You're boasting, you're bragging about the law and about being a Jew. And in so doing that, you are dishonoring God. Arrogance and hypocrisy always accompany legalism. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Here's a portion that really, really explains to us the thinking of the Pharisees, that that arrogant, self-righteous superiority. Luke chapter 18. Look at verse number 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a, what's that next word? Publican. Not Republican, but publican. Notice verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This was a parable. It's not a real life story, but it is a true-to-life story. What Jesus reveals to us here is the heart of a Pharisee. Their heart is filled with self-righteous superiority. Notice what he prays. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are. And he goes on to list all of his virtues and, and all of everybody else's faults. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, and I'm certainly not like him, that publican. So back in Mark chapter 2, when they asked this question, this contradiction of the Lord Jesus, how is it that he eats with publicans and sinners? This is coming from a heart of prideful hypocrisy and self-righteousness. They weren't concerned about Jesus' reputation. They certainly weren't concerned that he may have actually been doing something wrong unless... They could score points against him by pointing it out. They were totally misconstruing biblical principles. They were totally misjudging Jesus. They were judging simply on the surface level. Well, he's eating with sinners. He must be a sinner too. That's a very shallow view, is it not? Jesus said, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now notice Jesus' cause with me. So here's the contradiction. Why is he eating with publicans and sinners? Behind it is the idea, doesn't he know he shouldn't do that? Doesn't he know it's bad to do that? He must not really be the holy son of God if he's doing that. But Jesus answers their objection in verse number 17. We'll call this Jesus' cause. Jesus came to heal the sin sick. He said in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
And so he says to these Pharisees, they that are whole have no need of a physician. I'm here because I have come to bring a cure for a spiritual disease. And I'm going to give that cure to the people who acknowledge that they have the disease. So the reason I'm eating with publicans and sinners is so that they could be saved from their sin. Notice that Jesus had a specific goal. His specific goal was salvation. He sat down to eat with sinners for the specific purpose of bringing them to the point of salvation by giving them the truth of the gospel, the truth about their sin and their need of a Savior so that they would ultimately repent of their sins and be saved. That's why Jesus did it. He did not sit down and eat with publicans and sinners to win their approval. He wasn't trying to grow his fan base. He wasn't seeking applause from them. He had a specific goal, and that was for their salvation. I know that sounds basic, but it is shocking how many Christians and churches go about ministry with the wrong goal. They have the goal of, let's just make it simple and pick, some, pick on some easy ones. They have a goal of attracting a big crowd. Now, having a lot of people under the sound of the gospel is a good thing. But the number of people in attendance is not the only thing that matters. But a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, that's all they can see. And so their goal is, let's get a big crowd. Sometimes it's about... Um, increasing their, uh, their popularity online. How many followers do we have? How many views do we have on these videos? How many clicks? How many likes? How many shares? All of this stuff that drives our world today. And churches and Christians, sometimes they get, they get sidetracked by that focus and they start gearing things toward that end. What is going to get the most attention? And somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that the specific goal that we should always pursue in our interaction with the lost is their salvation. Not their applause, not their accolades, their salvation. Jesus was there for their salvation. He was not there to affirm them either. He didn't sit down with sinners to tell them how good they were. All right? His conversation with them was not, I'm okay, you're okay. And everything Jesus did, he said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. That's a hard message. You take someone who's just convinced that they've never done anything wrong, and you say, no, actually, you have violated the laws of the Creator God of the universe, and therefore you deserve to spend eternity separated from Him in a place of literal fire called hell. That's a hard message. It takes some guts to share that message with people who may or may not want to hear it. He didn't call. He didn't sit down with them to affirm them And he didn't sit down with them to teach them how to reform themselves either. 
Notice he preached repentance, not reformation. There are plenty of religious groups out there who will teach you how to reform your life. Join this church, join this group, join this movement, go through this series, go through this class, follow these steps, and you can clean your life up. That's not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is you can't do it. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Therefore, there is no reforming yourself. You don't need to be reformed. You need to be reborn. That's the gospel. Jesus had a specific goal in mind, their salvation. Notice also he had a specific method. Verse number 17, back in Mark chapter 2, he said, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, and that change of mind will result in a change of direction. That's biblical repentance. It's not a work. It's a decision. It's a choice that you make to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin to the Savior. That's repentance. And that's what Jesus was calling them to. Notice that it was a direct confrontation. Jesus was very pointed in His message. He didn't beat around the bush. In some of His teaching, He told parables, yes, but it was not because He was somehow avoiding the truth. He did that for a reason, to help His followers understand the truth He was communicating. But you look at the teaching of Jesus, and He was pretty direct and clear. He didn't shy away from the truth. He was very pointed about it. He said, I'm here to call sinners to repentance. You Pharisees, you don't think you're sinners. That's why you're not ready for it yet. Once you admit you're a sinner, then you can repent of that sin. So he had a specific goal, he had a specific method, and he had a specific group that he was, in this context that he was ministering to, here's here's who I'm talking to. I have not come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus ate with these sin-sick souls for a specific reason, to use a specific method, to reach this specific group. Because He loved them and He wanted to see them saved. What is our takeaway? I think we need to be reminded today that having standards is good. We need to keep our standards high. Living a holy life is good. We need to be holy in all manner of conversation. Maintaining a healthy separation from sinful influences is good. But we need to be reminded today that in order to reach the lost with the gospel, we have to reach out to the lost with the gospel. We sometimes can be in in danger of secluding ourselves so much from the world that we become isolated. And there's a danger that we lose so much contact with the world that we, are, we can't be a good, an effective witness 
Because we don't even know lost people to witness to. The only, if, if the only people you know are Christians, can I tell you, you need to go find some lost people. You, you need to intentionally reach out in order to share the gospel with them. There was a song years ago. I don't know where the song came from. I don't vouch for the song in its entirety or the person who wrote it or sang it. I don't know much about it. But I do remember a line from it. And it stuck with me and I think there's a lot of truth in it. Here's the line. How can we reach a world we never touch? Think about that. How can we reach a world we never touch? If we are so isolated that we have no contact with the lost, no meaningful contact with the lost, how are we going to reach them with the gospel? We need to follow the example of our Savior. He interacted with publicans and sinners. He did not allow them to influence Him, but rather He influenced them, and He connected with them in order to share the gospel, to call them to repentance so that they might be saved. And if we're going to be followers of Christ and obedient to His command to share the gospel, then we must do the same. We must intentionally connect with the lost in some fashion in order to effectively reach them with the gospel. They that are whole don't need a physician. But those that are sick do. And all around us, there are sin-sick souls. We have the cure in the gospel message. Will we deliver it to them or not? Heavenly Father, as we bow before you this afternoon, I admit that this is an area of struggle because we don't want to allow the world to influence us. And so we, we, we put up healthy fences in order to guard ourselves against that influence. But sometimes we forget that on the other side of the fence is someone who needs the gospel in order to be saved. And Lord, I know we cannot lower our standards... We can't become the world to reach the world. You've called us to be light. You've called us to be salt. We have to maintain that difference in order to make that difference. So, Lord, we need your help. We need wisdom. We need a burden for the lost and a willingness to reach out to them so that they might be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to have a true spirit of outreach. To see ourselves as missionaries, as evangelists, everywhere we go, sharing that message of the gospel, every opportunity that we have. 
And Lord, we pray that souls would be saved through our influence for your name's sake and for your honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.